0: Welcome to The ConFab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of The Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Fred Barnes is here to talk about a young, up-and-coming politician who could make the difference between whether Republicans hold the Senate in 2018 or not. Then we're going to talk with Ethan Epstein about how uncomfortably close North Korea is getting to having ballistic missiles that could reach America. And Phil Terzian is going to tell us about a recently resolved case of innocent daycare workers caught up in the national madness of accusing kindergarten teachers of ritual satanic child molestation. All that coming up on The Confab. We kick off the Confab with Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of The Weekly Standard. Fred, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine.
0: So always a pleasure to have you here on the Confab. Well, I never miss a chance. Now, you're writing in the magazine this week about a relative newcomer to politics, mm-hmm. Josh Hawley, mm-hmm. the attorney general of Missouri, who's already being pressured into going for higher office. Mm-hmm. What, what gives that uh, this, this relative newcomer is being pushed forward so much?
1: Well, you know, he's someone I've known for several years. He's a, a, a brilliant young guy. He's 37. He went to Stanford undergraduate, Yale Law School, and uh, after growing up in a small town in Missouri, and he finally decided he would run for Attorney General of Missouri. And he did astonishingly well. You know, And Missouri, that was just in the last election. That was, last, that was less than a year ago. That was last November. And he was elected. But most astonishing, Eric, was that he... Uh, ran ahead of Donald Trump. Now, Missouri's a great Trump state, but Hawley got 58%, and, and Trump only got a mere 56%. So, now, was uh, Hawley
0: up against some kind of particularly weak opposition? It, or He
1: was up against uh, strong opposition, but they just couldn't quite match uh, Hawley, who is uh, a very likable guy. Had he, had he run for of any money, office before? Never run for any office. Just a and natural. Just a natural. Well, it was after, you know, topping Trump and everything uh, and the Senate seats coming up in 2018 that the moderates in the, in the Republican Party in Missouri and the conservatives yeah, both agree this is the guy who can beat Claire McCaskill, this Democratic woman we've been trying to beat for years. And we need him to forget about that attorney general stuff. He's been there a couple months. That's enough. And, and we need him to run for the Senate.
0: Now, Claire McCaskill is a great example, as you point out in your piece, of somebody who the last time she ran, she picked her opposition and <laughs> and picked very well from her point yeah, of view. She certainly
1: did. She picked Todd Aiken of uh, of legitimate rape fame. You'll remember that quote that how, how he was did, explaining all the way to Election <laughs> Day, and I, I never quite understood what he was getting at. You know, I thought rape was illegitimate, but anyway, he— uh, uh, how, how did uh, she pick him? Well, you pick him by running ads in the Democratic prim- in the Republican primary or running ads saying that uh, you you ought to, not, you ought to vote in the, in the Republican primary for Todd Aiken. Right. And, I think and,
0: people f- don't realize how frequently this happens in elections where mm-hmm. one party advertises, on behalf of whom they think is going to be the weakest candidate yeah. of, of mm. the opposing party.
1: And, of course, the press, if Republicans do something like that, then it's interfering, it's uh, unconstitutional, it's mean, it's horrible. Mean. In her case, oh, it was just, oh, you know, isn't she clever? And she was clever, <laughs> and, and she won as a result, probably absent that. If, if she hadn't run against Todd Akin, she'd have had a very hard time winning. She might have anyway, but against Akin, it was a cakewalk.
0: Does Josh Hawley have enough experience for the rough and tumble of politics at the Senate level?
1: I think so. Uh, it helps that he's won a statewide race, the campaign very hard. It was a tough race. Uh, Missouri is a state that's become increasingly red, increasingly Republican, but it wasn't guaranteed that he was going to win. And, uh, and that, I think that gives him uh, uh, the right experience. He knows Missouri well. But particularly, he's very smart and, and very nice, both. You know, the, when those come together, uh, you get a candidate. He's very, very conservative, a social conservative, among other things. But the moderates want him to run, too, because they see a winning candidate.
0: So are Republicans going to have to pick up some seats like McCaskill's seats and, seat and maybe Manchin's seat in, in West Virginia if they hope to hang on to the Senate in, in 2018?
1: Could be, you know. So many of these, uh, there are so many Democratic seats up. So many more. Most of them don't seem to be vulnerable, even in in states that Trump won. You look at uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, a Democrat in North Dakota. Republicans can't find a candidate to run against her hmm. uh, in other. They states. don't have
0: any attorney generals, in... and
1: <laughs> <laughs> they they must have them. But <laughs> I guess they're not the uh, uh, quite at. Uh, Josh Hawley's level um, and and that's true in some of these other states but Missouri uh, look like really looks like it's going to be a different one that will be a great a race that will get a lot of attention uh, Claire McCaskill is I wouldn't call her a, a, a terribly high profile figure in Washington but she's pretty well known and uh, so, so that's going to be a terrific race he, you know one of the things I've thought that being likable is a great attribute in politics, and if you're smart and likable, uh, I think you're ahead of the game. My go
0: places. Yes. One of the things you write in the piece that I found particularly interesting was the extent to which being an attorney general is now the stepping mm-hmm. stone to higher office.
1: Well, it is. You know, attorney generals in most states, or I should say, attorneys general. Yes, we'll (laughs) get the grammar police here at the (laughs) CONFAB. Being the plural. um, uh, are on their own. Uh, You know, I used to think, before I knew more about this, that they, gee, the attorney general, he works for the governor, right? In most states, uh, they do not. They're elected separately, uh, so they're on their own. And they really... Uh, developed a, a strong role for themselves, these Republican AGs, during the Obama administration because they could uh, sue the Environmental Protection Agency. They could sue other uh, uh, things uh, against things that Obama had done in other areas as well. And and a lot of them became well-known. There's Scott Pruitt, A.G. of Oklahoma, and now the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, and, and there's a, a Luther Strange, someone I've known for many years, who is now uh, a senator from Alabama, appointed by the now departed governor. Uh, and, and so other attorney generals, attorneys general, are planning on running next year. So it's a it's a great platform.
0: And we will expect to see a lot of Democratic talent come up the same way because now we'll have attorneys general on the Democratic side who are who are making their name by opposing Trump on. They have finally
1: figured it out. Republicans were way ahead of them, in in in, uh, acting uh, collectively. Uh, among the Republican AGs and and moving against Trump in many different areas. And the Democrats were sort of uh, looking out, uh, looking on them, sort of uh, quizzically didn't know quite what was going on. They finally figured it out that if they band together, they can be a very strong force and they'll do exactly what you were referring to, Eric, file suit against various things that uh, Trump has done. And they've already started.
0: All right. Well, Josh Hawley, Attorney General of Missouri, a talent to keep an eye on in the Indeed. coming election season. Fred Barnes, thanks for joining mm-hmm. us on The Confab. Always like it. And now we welcome to The Confab, Ethan Epstein, associate editor of The Weekly Standard. Ethan, how's it
2: going? Okay, I always feel like I'm here discussing grim topics, but uh, well, that's apparently what, that's my cross here. So that's, that's what you get for having a uh, beat on the North Korea beat. Yes, I know. I need. I, I. Why can't I be on like the South Korea beat, the happy beat, The K-pop beat? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so
0: you have an editorial in the magazine this week in which you say that um, what Barack Obama had called his policy of strategic patience now warrants a change to strategic impatience.
2: That's right. Um, the time for sort of sitting around and hoping that either north korea will you know see the error of its ways and uh, come back to the negotiating table uh you know be willing to freeze its missiles and nuclear program or, or perhaps you know waiting for china to step in and do something about it uh that time has passed um you know they now have the capability to launch a missile that will hit alaska everybody that follows this closely agrees that within a year or two they'll quite likely have the ability to launch a nuclear attack on a major city in the continental United States. Uh, No one's saying they're going to, but they'll have that ability, which really changes the calculus. So if we're going to stop that from happening, uh, now's the time. How great a risk is there that as
0: North Korea proceeds with its various missile tests, that it actually gets a missile that it's testing that may have no warhead on it whatsoever, but that Actually, flies over toward Alaska or toward the U.S. West Coast. What happens if a missile from North Korea starts approaching
2: the U.S. mainland? You know, I've I've worried about that because you know they have had mishaps before. Now, all of those mishaps have been in sort of the the good direction, insofar as they've blown up you know on the launch pad or immediately after launch. But I mean, that's a great question. What if they can't control it the way they want to and even without a, a warhead attached to it, that could precipitate some some serious stuff. I mean this Yeah, is, what do you do if you're at NORAD and you see on the screen yeah, on I the mean, big board? Damn the torpedoes. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh the when people talk about the potential for miscalculation, I mean, that's the kind of situation they're talking about. And now the stakes are so much higher too, because there'll be the suspicion, like, have they put in have they put a miniaturized nuclear weapon on it? So I mean that could precipitate a serious conflagration. Um, I mean, it's a very frightening thing to consider. So, the U.S. Nikki Haley at the UN is
0: talking sanctions, new sanctions for North Korea, but also suggesting that um, that U.S. is impatient and willing to take greater action if
2: need be. What what could that be? So, I think a lot of what uh, what Trump is doing on China. Um, even if it doesn't look like it's about North Korea it might have something to do with North Korea. So, you know, they had this idiotic bromance when Xi Jinping went to Mar-a-Lago and Trump appeared to be totally smitten by the Chinese dictator. I'm glad to now see the bromance is off. Trump is now fed up with the lack of Chinese action. So, you know, they sanctioned the bank of Dandong, which uh, is this pretty small lender that basically handles a ton of North Korean transactions. Uh, but I also think if you look at stuff like Trump threatening action on uh, Chinese steel exports in the United States, that might not necessarily, you know, as Freud might put it, uh, you know, a, steel, a fight over steel exports might not necessarily be about steel exports. It might actually be about North Korea. It might be about using the leverage that the U.S. has to push China to take more action against North Korea. And if so, then I, that's a salutary development, I think. Although China
0: playing the game in the opposite direction is always using the threat
2: of North Korea to protect itself from efforts from the West that's right I mean they look they both have leverage in this situation um, but you know China is obviously an economic colossus it's the second largest economy in the world by GDP but they are still fairly beholden to the United States for a lot of their own economic uh, well-being. And uh, I think Trump is right to realize that. To what extent is North Korea on the agenda at the G20 summit? Well, I I mean, I think it will be near the top. Um, This will be the first, uh, you know, obviously... Since the missile launch just happened last week, this will be the first opportunity for all these people to be together to discuss it. And people sort of on the opposite ends of the issue. Obviously, China will be there. Russia, who had not been particularly helpful on North Korea, will be there. And it's obviously something that Trump has brought to the uh, forefront of his agenda since he was inaugurated. So There was some sense that the new president of South Korea
0: would be going out of his way to make nice with North Korea. Mm-hmm. Are, are those bets off at this point?
2: I, yes. I, I mean, I, that's clearly his medium to long term goal. But in the short term, he he can't do that. I mean, North Korea, for one, hasn't shown the willingness to come to the table. So even if he issued an invitation, there's no guarantee North Korea would take it. But he can't risk creating a fissure with the United States. And I also think just the domestic political considerations at this point won't allow. When North Korea is being so belligerent, it would it would be such an act of Suicidal weakness to uh, toady up to him. So I think um, you know Moon has seen that. But Kim Jong Un, mad dictator of North Korea, he's got to be pretty happy with what he's achieved of late. Completely. I mean, so the kim's goal going back several decades was to become a nuclear state with the ability to hit the united states because to them that was the the one way they could ensure that their regime would not be toppled from the outside so you know as far as uh rail politic you know i have to doff my cap to those psychopaths i mean they've actually they're they're just about to have pulled it off and it's a pretty amazing technological achievement too. When this was a, a country that was had a famine in the mid nineties that killed millions, it's still desperately poor, and they're on the verge of you know joining the truly elite club of nuclear weapon states. It's,
0: well, it's a measure of the state that um, they st- they still have people starving while they manage technological
2: achievement. Yes, I mean that shows the like sick priorities of the regime, but it also shows um, for also kind of shows a sort of Amazing technical, technical aptitude, too, given that uh, this is a country where they were eating tree bark but at the same time doing advanced physics. Ethan Epstein, Associate
0: Editor of the Weekly Standard, thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you. And now we're joined on the Confab by Phil Terzian, Senior Editor of the Weekly Standard. Phil, welcome to the Confab.
3: Delighted to be here.
0: Well, you're writing this week in the magazine about um, the legacy of what a tough time it was to have a daycare facility in the 1980s. Um, In particular, the case of Fran and Dan Keller, uh, recently fully exonerated. Tell us their story.
3: Well, they were a couple in Austin, Texas, who had a daycare center in their house, and they were... This was in the early 1990s. They were accused of molesting their charges and performing satanic sexual abuse rituals and so on. And of course, this was an era in America for about a decade, beginning in the mid 1980s, when such accusations were flying around um, uh, with considerable frequency. And, and, and
0: flying around is, is an, an operative term because among the kinds of allegations that were regularly made in these cases, which were brought across the country to daycare providers, completely unrelated to one another, um, but very similar charges, but that that people levitated were among the things being charged.
3: Yes, well, satanic rituals was a was a serious concern. I mean, even around here in Fairfax County, um, uh, Virginia, we would have um, Fairfax County policemen would talk to uh, elementary school students about uh, signs of satanic uh, uh, belief and rituals that were going on. This was a this was a, a, a real threat that was taken quite seriously in some quarters. The problem is that it took a very serious turn in the in the mid-1980s when the, f- the first case, which was in Los Angeles uh, involving a family called McMartin, were charged with all manner of sexual abuse and child molestation. And among the many um, uh, uh, examples were the levitation of one of the teachers around the schoolhouse. Anyway, the Kellers in Austin were Uh, charged, tried, and convicted, and spent 21 years in prison. Well
0: into the 2000s, they were still in jail.
3: In 2013, well, around a little before 2013, um, a magazine in Texas uh, took up the case. And to make a long story short, uh, they were ultimately um, paroled and considerable doubt was cast on the case. And then this past month, uh, the... Austin District Attorney actually exonerated them, saying that there was absolutely no credible evidence that any crime had even taken place at all. What surprised me about this and what prompted me to write the piece was that um, even though there were hundreds of such cases across the country in that period involving hundreds, if not thousands of years of prison sentences, and certainly hundreds of people, Uh, I had frankly not realized that there were still some people uh, in prison because most of the famous cases, people did get out of prison within five or ten years. There was a famous case in New England that Dorothy Rabinowitz of The Wall Street Journal took up involving a family called Amaral just outside Boston. Where the last of the poor uh, daycare workers were finally released from custody in two thousand four, but I had not known about, frankly, about the Keller case. So I was shocked it had this had had happened even up until this recently.
0: And it's one of the things you bring out in your piece is you, you go back and you look at the allegations made in the eighties, and it's shocking how preposterous the whole thing is, and that. Yet, with straight faces, these ad, adult prosecutors regularly pursued people to the ends of the earth based on stuff that is, on its face, ridiculous.
3: Well, it was—I mean, it, it was a case of it was so ridiculous that you had to assume maybe there was some substance to it. I—I I, I was working at the Los Angeles Times when the McMartin case broke, and it was a big story for the Times. And you're absolutely right. The, the the details of the case, I mean, first of all, this was a daycare center that had been in business for uh, 30 years, actually, in, in Manhattan Beach. There had never been a hint of anything like this. It was very popular. Hundreds and hundreds of families had sent their children there. But there were allegations of years on end of not only um, gothic sort of sexual uh, abuse of children, but also... Uh, killing and dismemberment of little rabbits and forcing the children to drink blood, um, taking them on field trips to cemeteries to dig up cadavers. Uh, The killers, among other things, were accused of flying the children, I presume, in an airplane down to Mexico so that they could be raped by members of the Mexican army. Um,
0: Did anybody ever produce the airplane?
3: Uh, nor any of the Mexican soldiers <laughs> or, or the the airline I mean, or we anything. laugh.
0: But the allegations are, are horrific. Uh, and the fact that anybody would make that such obviously ridiculous, horrible allegation is even more horrific. Well,
3: there was there was there's that. And then also there was this notion that children just don't lie about these things. and,
0: and by the way, As anyone who's ever had children.
3: Or been a child.
0: Or been a child. (laughs) Fibbing is not unknown.
3: Well, and the other interesting point about many of these cases, and it was common to all of them, was that the children were all interviewed by social workers and therapists and otherwise. Fortunately, in the McMartin case, these interviews were all filmed. And if you look at them... The children are basically being badgered and threatened. You know, everyone else in your class says that so and so was flying around. And don't why don't you say that too? And of course, the inclination of three-year-olds, when an adult is glaring at them, saying this, is to is to provide them with what they want. So, of course, they would sort of shrug and say, "Yes, that happened." And then, you know, where's my where's my toy to play with? So it was. The 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 children's and when I say children, we're talking about really young children, three and four years old. Their testimony was suspect at the very least and highly tainted.
0: One of the things you point out in in your article is how we like to think that we're modern, reasonable, scientific sorts of people, um, but it's it's surprising the extent to which our behavior ends up being not unlike. Uh, the Salem Witch Trial, people that we would think of derisively.
3: Oh no, no, we're we're very much evolved since the 1690s. Except that if you look at the Salem witchcraft trials, a lot of the features are exactly the same. These sort of dubious child witnesses, the malevolent spirits, the uh, of course the the prosecutorial zeal uh, based in but Salem they puppets. Not that I, not that I'm aware of, but uh, no, it's 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 a it's a very instructive uh, example of how uh, you know we now have electricity and uh, impressive automobiles and things like that, but human nature has not necessarily changed all that much over the eons.
0: Phil Terzian, senior editor of the Weekly Standard, thanks for joining us on the confab.
3: Thank you for asking me.
0: That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.